Well, good morning again. Good morning. I got to get all my, uh, all my stuff up here. I got to get all my cues to remind me about things and, and stuff and things and, you know, lots of stuff going on. I'm even experimenting with something up here. I'll, I'll share it with you in a few weeks if it works, but um, if not, you know, hey, that's life. Uh, we'll just try. Hey, uh, the CPC fundraiser, big deal, big deal. Um, and one thing um, Susan didn't mention is they're doing a lot of online stuff too. And so I believe they sent us a link um, to be able to post. And so we're going to try to get that posted on our website this week. If, if anybody would rather give online, uh, they're accepting donations that way as well. And then I just want to reiterate, uh, it's fun having the kids up here. McKenna's doing an awesome job with that. And yeah, VBS is in a month already. Something fun, exciting uh, to look forward to. I know I am. I love hanging out with the kids. I love hanging out with so many people from our church, uh, volunteering and things together. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful week um, together. And that will be here before we know it. This summer will fly by. The kids, um, hopefully you got one of these. If you haven't looked through it, um, I have. Um, and McKenna gave me a heads up, so I kind of previewed a little bit. And there is a page in there, a little challenge for you to pay very close attention today. And there's a page with a bunch of words. And I've looked through it, and I am very confident that I will say at least all of them but two for sure. Um, the others might happen on accident. I don't know. But I know all the rest of them I absolutely will say. So listen carefully for those and see if you can catch those as we go through it. All right, that's kind of a fun little, fun little word game for everybody to play. I'm excited about that. As well, it's, it's fun to do those kinds of things, right? So we're in the book of James. Next week will be the final week in the book of James. And so I just want to give you a heads up on that. We're in chapter 5 starting today. So if you've got your Bible with you or your phone, your app, open it up. James chapter 5 is where we are today. And it's kind of strange because James, and I get this feeling a lot in some of the letters in scripture. It's like those guys are writing these things down and they're dwindling toward the end of what they know. Maybe they're out of a paper. Who knows what it is? But whatever it is they're writing on, whether it's time is of the essence, they get to the end and they, they start scrambling and they, they start putting things in there. You're like, now that seems kind of disconjointed from some of the other things that you were saying. And whether it's the spirit moving in them saying, hey, don't forget to say this, or it's a stream of consciousness thing where they're like, oh, I remember this teaching. Oh, I need to share this with, oh, wait, I got to respond to that person. Or, oh, wait, I don't know. Um, but it, it's funny because you sense that change in direction. There's this flow and flow and flow, and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait, I got to throw this in real quick. And so it's always curious to me about those kinds of things. And that's exactly what happens here in the final chapter of James at the beginning. James all of a sudden starts sounding like an Old Testament prophet. He definitely has not sounded like that up to this point in time. Maybe he says something here that maybe some of us heard from our parents or maybe our grandparents when we weren't exactly behaving exactly the way that they thought we should. So as we read, I want you to imagine um, what is happening here. Um, this reality of James's genuine focus on our genuine faith. That is his goal here is to talk about our faith and help us grow in our faith and become more and more and more like Jesus every single day day of our lives. He's reminding us that as followers of Jesus, we should be living out our faith at all times. It should be brutally obvious to everyone that we are followers of Jesus. Whether we're rich or we're poor, it doesn't matter. Jesus should be on display for everybody to see. So as he writes really briefly here about wealth, again, not related to anything else he's written so far, remember that God's concern really isn't about our actual wealth. It's our attitude towards such things. God's counsel is not against people who are wealthy, but it's the way in which those that often are wealthy have wrong priorities with their wealth. And so how does he start? He starts with this. Now listen here. 
Who's ever heard that one before? Uh, Only a few of us guys. Nobody else has ever been told. Now listen here. We've probably heard that at some point in time. Now listen here, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted. Your moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look at the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields. They're now crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Ouch! Who on earth is James writing to here? Are there, there specific people that he's writing this to? Has he been told specific stories? Are these specific people around him? Are these specific people that are persecuting the Jewish Christians? Because that's primarily who James is writing to. We don't know those answers for sure. But what I can do is kind of give you an example of maybe a potential group of people that James might have been writing to from a more modern standpoint, not modern as in today, but just not that long ago. There's a, there's a, a meeting that's told of. Now, we don't know for sure if this actually happened, this actual meeting. Uh, the media didn't cover it, and it seems odd that they wouldn't, but back then it was possible to get away with things. <laughs> you didn't have the media constantly covering, you didn't have cell phones everywhere, you didn't have everybody reporting everybody's whereabouts all the time, you didn't have social media and all those kinds of things. And so the, the legend is told of this legendary meeting in 1923, where America's most powerful men all got together in Chicago at a hotel. These nine men were from very diverse fields, but they were some of the richest people in the entire world at the time. They were financiers, power brokers, beginning with the president of America's largest steel company, the president of America's largest utility company, the largest gas company, the president of New York Stock Exchange, the president of the Bank of International Settlements, the nation's greatest Wall Street bear and speculator and the head of the world's greatest monopoly. And just for good fun, we throw in a member of the president's cabinet, President Harding's cabinet. Now, again, we don't know that this meeting ever took place for sure, but we do absolutely know the outcomes of all nine of these men's lives. This meeting was said to be a celebration of their success as well as an opportunity to plan their future exploits and their current dominance in all of their respective areas. These were captains of their industries, some of the most successful businessmen in the entire world. But the results of their lives, well, within 25 years, every single one of them, every single one of them had a horrific end to their career and many of them also their lives. The president of the largest steel company, Bethlehem Steel at the time, his name was Charles Schwab, not to be confused with the Charles Schwab Investment Company, different Charles Schwab, same time frame, but different Charles Schwab. He died a bankrupt man. The president of the largest utility company, Samuel Insull, died penniless. The president of the largest gas company suffered a mental breakdown, ended up in an insane asylum. The president of the New York Stock Exchange, Richard Whitney, had just been released from prison. The, president, the bank president, Leon Frazier, had taken his own life. The wheat speculator, Arthur Cutton, had died penniless. The head of the world's greatest monopoly, Ivar Kruger, the match king, as he was called, had taken his own life. The president, member of President Harding's cabinet, his name was Albert Fall. He'd just been given a pardon from prison so that he could die at home. The Wall Street bear, Jesse, Loris, and Livermore, maybe the most famous speculator in stock market of uh, commodities market at that time, ended in probably the most tragic of ways. After Thanksgiving in 1940, he walked into a hotel in New York, had a few drinks at the bar, scribbled something in a notebook, proceeded to their cloakroom, 
and took his own life. He was 62 years old. He left behind 5 million, which was down from the 100 million he had just 10 years prior. Now, that 100 million was amassed after the Great Depression, so keep that in mind. Yes, that did take place between A and B, but most of these men had recuperated from a lot of that. The note that he scribbled said this, my dear Nina, can't help things. Things have been bad with me. I'm tired of fighting. Can't carry on any longer. This is the only way out. I'm unworthy of your love. I'm a failure. I am truly sorry, but this is the only way out for me. Love, Lori. Now, as you consider this, this, these men had it all. How they obtained it, we don't know. Well, that's not true. Several of these men, we do know how they obtained it, and it's the exact group of people James was referring to. Their combined wealth was said to be more than that of the United States Treasury at the time. James wrote these words to those that were physically rich, but spiritually poor. Now, I don't often use the message in service for lots of reasons, but there are absolutely times where Eugene Peterson grabs the text and rewrites it in such a way, paraphrases it in such a way like, oh, wow, that's, wow, ouch. Um, that's, and that's, this passage is perfect for that. Listen to the way Eugene Peterson paraphrased this passage and then compare that with the lives of these nine men I just told you about. Verses one through three, and a final word to you, you arrogant rich. Take some times in lament. You need buckets for the tears when the crash comes upon you. Your money is corrupt and your fine clothes stink. Your greedy luxuries are a cancer in your gut, destroying your life from within. You thought you were piling them up well, but what you piled up was judgment. Verses 4 through 6, all the workers you've exploited and cheated cry out for judgment. The groans of the workers you used and abused are a roar in the ears of the master avenger. Marvel fans. You've looted the earth and lived it up, but all you have to show for it, all you have to show for it is a fatter than usual corpse. In fact, what you've done is condemn and murder perfectly good persons who stand there and take it. When you read those final words and you think about the letter, the short little note that Jesse Livermore wrote to his wife, you see that lifestyle literally lived out. Money, money's not evil. It's not. It's the love of money that corrupts and drives all this evil. And the problem is virtually all of us are tempted in this area of life, are we not? Nearly all of us want more. The question is, what are we willing to sacrifice in order to get it. There's four categories that really all of humanity fit in. I know it's hard to stereotype and lump everybody together, but these are four really generic categories, so I'm sure you'll understand it. There's those that are poor physically and poor spiritually. These are people that don't have any money and don't have a clue who God is in their lives yet. I always love to add that word, yet. There are those that are rich physically and rich spiritually. If you go into the scriptures, there's actually several folks in the scriptures that would be defined that way. Folks like Abraham, folks like Job, folks like King David, Joseph. These men were very wealthy by worldly standards, and they were very, had very deep relationships with their God. Now, in today's world, do those people still exist? Yeah, they do. And you see, when those people speak up, what happens to them, don't you? It's a shame. But I pray that they continue to speak out because God is the source of their wealth. And if they understand that, then they're going to be willing to speak out because even if it goes away, their faith isn't in their wealth. It's in God. Then there are those that are poor physically, 
but rich spiritually. If any of you have ever been on a mission trip, especially to a third world country or maybe even an inner city location, then you know the people I'm speaking of. You walk in and you walk into their lives and they've got dirt floors and they're feeding you this immaculate meal for them and you have no idea how they even came up with it because they have no money, they have no job, they have no home, they're covered, they've got tarps covering their roof because they don't have a roof and yet they are the happiest, most content people in the entire world. And you go, how is this possible? They have nothing. Well, they would, of course, say, no, we have everything because we have God. See, it's all about perspective for those people. Would they enjoy having a little more in life? Probably, probably, but they're content because they understand that God is all that they need. Their faith seems to be a little more genuine, doesn't it? A little more impactful in their life. It seems to guide and direct everything they do because they have no choice but to rely on God for everything they have. And then we have the last group, the group that James is referring to, those that are rich physically but incredibly poor spiritually. And so as James addresses this group, he accurately describes many, many, many in our country today, does he not? We might not consider ourselves to be rich, but if you know the reality of the rest of the world, we absolutely are. None of you walked here. (laughs) But God's desire is not for us to feel guilty about what we have. God's desire is for us to return thanks, to be grateful, and to be generous with what he has given us. So as believers today, whose God has absolutely, richly, incredibly blessed in so many ways, even beyond finances, our goal then becomes how do we make sure not to fall into this trap, into this lifestyle trap that so many people that are wealthy do? Well, one thing is to listen because our money talks. Now, you've heard that expression. Usually money talks is referring to corruption and buying off people and paying for favors and all those kinds of things. But that's not really what we're talking about here. James begins by saying, now listen, you rich people. There's a couple of reactions you could possibly have to that opening paragraph. There are those without money that sometimes say, you know what, I'm actually a lot more spiritually than those who do have money because I have to rely on God. Well, that may be true, but it's not an absolute for sure. On the flip side, there are those who have money and they do feel guilty. They feel as if they have to be defensive because of what God has blessed them with. Well, once again, they do not have to feel that way. These verses apply to all of us. Being rich is relative compared to the rest of the world. Every single one of us listening has a lot more than everyone else in the world. The reality is no matter how much you have, there's somebody who has more. No matter how little you have, there's someone who has less. We have to consider those truths in our lives when we think about this stuff. The words in James 5, 1 through 6 are for all of us at all times, if in fact our money does talk, then it's going to speak volumes about what we think is important. How we deal with our money is a reflection of our spiritual health. We talked about that in the month of of January. James deals with how we get our money, how we guard our money, and then ultimately how we give our money. Now, the issue of how we get our wealth in James's passage, what he was writing was to people that were corrupt individuals. They were making every dime they have off the backs of someone else. This issue is so important that he he continues to write it in throughout the paragraph over and over again, which means it must be important for us to consider how do we obtain our wealth. Our money talks. 
What is it saying about how we gathered our money? Is it saying we're cheating people? Is it saying we're corrupt? Or is it saying that we're doing things in a godly way? We work hard for our money. We save, we invest, we do things wisely. It's an important idea. If we exploit others, then our gold and silver will testify against us, Scripture tells us. If we've obtained it through hard work, wise investing, good business, then that is a reflection of godly characteristics, and people will find out how we've obtained our wealth, and they will ask us how to do it, and we will say, well, we put our faith and trust in God, and we follow His ways, and He has now blessed us. The second way, how we guard our money. The person that James is talking about here, these are people who have hoarded their money. They've kept it all to themselves. They've guarded wealth. Promises great joy, doesn't it? But it ultimately brings great misery. Ask anyone who's hoarded all their wealth in the stock market lately and see what's happened to their joy as that happened. When we begin to love money, it ceases to bless us. And it begins to curse us. We think a little more money will make us happy, but we've all fallen for that before, haven't we? It's a great deception. The parable of the rich fool best illustrates this example. He had accumulated so much that he decided, I'm going to build all these big old barns to store all of my stuff in. And then I'm going to chill. I'm going to relax. I'm going to watch Netflix. It'll be great. He never considered God or others. And then his life was taken. It came to an abrupt end, and all the wealth in the world had absolutely no value at that moment in time. Guarded wealth is deceitful, and it's deceptive. Now, there's nothing wrong with having money. We've got to understand that. But guarded money will never spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will never spread the good news. Then the final idea that James is portraying here is is this idea of how do we give our money This might be the loudest that our money can actually speak on our behalf. It it, it talks about us more than anything else. Some people give their money to themselves in self-indulgence. Other people give it to the Lord to advance the kingdom. The men James is describing here, he's keeping all of their ill-gotten wealth for themselves. They don't care about anyone or anything else. When we guard our earthly treasure, scriptures tell us that it rots, doesn't it? Moths will come in and eat it. It'll be destroyed. Thieves will come in and steal it. It will ruin us. One day, that wealth will stand up and testify against us that we were unwilling to give. Our money talks, in essence. And so is it saying things like, get me, however you can, work four more jobs, whatever you got to do to get as much money as you possibly can, don't care what it costs you. Does your money say, grab a hold of me when you get it and don't let go? Don't let go. Don't give it up for any reason under the sun? Or does it say, spend me? Spend me on yourself and your pleasures and don't worry about other people or your life or anything else. Just have fun with all the money that you can make. If so, if those are things that exist in your life, then it's become your master. Money can also talk, though, and it can give glory to God. Think about how your finances can bless the kingdom work of Jesus Christ. It could be giving away in the service of the king. It could be going and serving in other places. It could be donating to organizations like the church, like Christ's Pregnancy Center, things like that to carry that gospel message across the world. Behind me, you probably should see a picture now of this wall that exists. It's in Lima, Peru. It's called the Wall of Shame. It's a giant concrete barrier that the wealthy built to divide the city, the slums of the city from the more wealthy part of the city. There's great disparity between that within a very close proximity in that city. 
the reality of that wall is it's become the symbol now of the divide between the rich and the wealthy in that community. I want you to consider our own lives. Now, there's no physical wall in our community, is there? I don't think anybody has built one. But I ask you, is there a wall in your mind or in your heart that prevents you from interacting with certain people or maybe even venturing into certain parts of town? How do you refer to the people that live in that neighborhood or that apartment complex? Because if you refer to them in any other way than you would anyone else, then there's a wall in your heart and in your mind. And it prevents us from doing so many things, including being generous. Is there a wall in your heart that keeps you from reaching out to someone in need? Is there a wall that exists to help you keep from loving someone else with the love of Jesus, no matter their current circumstances? If so, and I realize this may not be very popular speak for some, can I suggest for you an option? Tear down that wall. However that wall got built inside of you, allow the Spirit to tear it down. Two weeks ago, we talked about the infiltration of the Holy Spirit in this world as it came and descended upon those first disciples and then those original believers. We must understand that that was not a moment limited to Pentecost. That gift was not only given to the first believers, it is given to all believers. It is given to you and it is given to me. We have to allow him to let us move. We've got to allow the spirit to move within us. We have to let him take over. And if those walls exist in us, if we are hoarding our possessions, if we have barriers between us and those that maybe aren't as advantaged in life as, as, life as we are, haven't had as good fortune, haven't been able to work as hard, had, had upbringing, had addiction issues, whatever the reason is, if there's something in your mind that separates you from those people, then allow the Spirit to tear that wall down. Because remember, in all of this, James's theme throughout this book is genuine faith. It has to show in every area of our life, including our finances. We have to die to self and live for him who died for us. And then something happens. Again, I, I feel like James is like, okay, all right, I, I'm talking, I, I like to re read this as if James is speaking to the masses, not writing a letter. And he gets to this point where he changes directions. And he's been talking to everybody, and now he kind of pauses and lowers his voice and looks at those gathered closest to him, the believers, those in Christ with him. And he leans down close to them, because now, in this part of the letter, he's addressing the majority of the people that he's writing to. He pauses, he looks at them, he realizes that these believers aren't the wealthy. They're the ones being abused, they're the ones being taken advantage of, and worse. And he compassionately says to them, be patient. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its crops, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, you know we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord has finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes 
or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, the last three months has given me some lessons in patience. Has it you? (laughs) Waiting on things. Have you ever felt like the world around you is just in chaos and you have absolutely no control over what all is happening all around you? Huh? If you haven't, then you haven't been alive for the last three months. So wake up. Congratulations. It is 2020. Believe it or not, it is June of 2020. James reminds us to be patient specifically. He's very specific about this. Be patient on the Lord's second coming. Instead of being patient, there are a lot of people who are presumptuous, impatient, pushy, even rude. And unfortunately, a lot of those peoples claim the name of Christ, don't they? There are always those and there always will be those. There have always been those that are trying to predict the Lord's second coming. That's not wise for a lot of reasons, but James right here is telling us, be patient. Don't be presumptuous. Don't even try to figure it out because Some guy named Jesus said, no one knows. I don't know who thinks they're above that, but they're not, and I'm just telling them that right now. No one. Every major world event brings a new crop of people saying the sky is falling and Jesus' return is tomorrow. Here's the reality. Are we living in the last days? Absolutely, without a doubt, we are. Do I know what that means? Absolutely not whatsoever at all. I don't. I don't, I don't have a clue. Are there little bits and pieces in Scripture that reveal things? Yes. But to absolutely know, no clue whatsoever at all. Here's what I do know. We are approximately 2,000 years closer to that second coming than we were when James wrote, wrote this letter. And that's all I have to go from. And that's all you have to go from. I don't know about you, but for some of us, patience is difficult. As we wait, it's easy to become irritated, frustrated with the world and things around us. Have you ever stood in line or been stuck in traffic. You know, that reveals a lot about you as a person, right? I'm just telling you, it does. I've ridden with people that, no joke, pulling out of the parking lot, they're already angry because of this, that, or the other. Forget anything else that happens. How long does it take for you to get irritated or frustrated, upset, complaining, grumbling? In this life together with our neighbors, coworkers, and other believers, a lot of people turn to holding grudges, to grumbling, There's also potential with us to become bitter and resentful. James is calling us in these times to stand firm. The Greek word means to prop up each other. This is important until the Lord's return. We, believers, cannot grumble and complain with one another. I don't care if you're 80 or 10. You can't grumble against other believers and about this issue in the church and that issue in the church. This is what James is addressing. Be patient. This world is not perfect, nor will it ever be until Jesus' return. So quit griping, quit complaining, quit arguing against each other. How often do we see the church splitting and dividing and getting angry with each other? Because they're impatient, and they want what they want, not what Christ wants. This is an issue in the church, and we've got to address it, and that's why James wrote to us and said, hey guys, be patient, stand together with each other. We have to help one another. Our genuine faith should be experienced by those around us in the church too. If you are a genuine believer in Christ, then your interactions with other people in the church, they should experience your faith. Is that how we treat one another? Be patient, stand firm. When Jesus comes, we know everything will change. Even the economics of this world will be reversed. 
And so James then takes a moment, he goes all the way back to the Old Testament, he brings up these biblical prophets and the examples of perseverance. He tells us to learn a lesson from those Old Testament prophets. Think about their lives, guys. They were hated, they were despised, they were killed by who? By God's people. Not outlaws, not other nations, but no, they were killed by God's very own people. The people God was sending them to with his words. Could you imagine having that job? Could you imagine sharing those messages from God with those people, how frustrating, how angry, how even depressed those prophets must have been as their word was ignored or even rejected and rebelled against completely? And it was the word of God. Then James throws out the example of Job, and he just mentions it very briefly in verse 11. He says, you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. Did you hear that word in there? Finally? How many, maybe lately, how many of you have used the word finally as an exclamation? For example, parents, finally, we're done with e-learning, right? Yeah, for some of you, finally, you're able to go back to work. Finally, yeah, we've used it that way. Finally, in the end, God will work things out for this world, and for you. Things in your life, things in my life, they're not perfect, are they? And we're going to work and we're going to strive and things will get better. And then something else will be imperfect, will it not? Are we going to get frustrated? Are we going to get bitter? Are we going to get angry? Because this is the story of our lives. This will be the case until Christ returns. Perseverance is the determination to keep going on and on and on by faith. And that's what we leave out. The imperfections and frustrations of life, they will continue to exist until finally God works it all out for his good. Keep that in mind. Verse 11, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Not a little, not in small portions. No, he is overflowing with mercy and compassion. He gives it to us freely. That's a blessing I hope you don't take for granted. And then once again, James tacks on one last thought before we switch gears to close it up next week. And I can't help but wonder about this specific one, because again, it really has nothing to do with the text right above or below it. It's kind of disjointed. And you know, we talked earlier when we began and we introduced James. If you didn't see that, watch the very first uh, session from this book, where we just talked about James and who he was. And imagine being the younger brother of Jesus Christ, what that was like. But we wondered, did James ever go and hear Jesus' teachings? Did James ever go and see any of Jesus' miracles? What was his experience? He didn't believe in Jesus until after the resurrection. But what was his experience before that? Well, this passage makes me wonder if on that hill that we read about this great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount in the book of Matthew, something makes me wonder if James happened to be there on that day, because this particular verse pertains specifically to something that Jesus said on that mountain to those people that day. Was there an instance out there in the believers where they just weren't being trustworthy, they just weren't working well with each other, people were saying they were going to do things and then they wouldn't, and so James is like, I remember when my brother said this, and I'm going to remind all of you of all this. We don't know, but he says this, above all, brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. Do you remember the days 
And probably there's many of us that don't. When someone's yes, a good handshake, all you needed to close a deal. Those days, that was real for those of you under the age of fill in the blank. That really was reality for a very long period of time. As believers, here's the thing, this is who we should be today. We should be reliable, we should be dependable, we should be absolutely faithful just as our God is faithful to us. When we say we're going to do something, we do it. When we say we're going to be there, we show up. That is who God asks us to be. That's who he is for us. And it is a great example in this world where nobody lives up to anything of us to stand out and be different. We have to be consistent. The world is a mess. Let's be honest. So here are our choices. A, we can be like the world. B, we can claim we're not like the world and spend all of our time grumbling and complaining about the world. Or C, we can actually be different from the world. So different, in fact, that people look at us, scratch our heads and go, what is wrong? Or maybe what is right with that person? Something's different. Our lives should match our lips. Another way of saying it, our walk should match our talk. James 5.12 says, do not swear. He's not talking about profanity here as much as he's talking about making oaths to other people. In his day and age, apparently, people were making oaths and promises and not living up to them. That doesn't happen anymore, thankfully. But in his time, that was the case. James's day, those oaths had lost their meaning. Have they lost their meaning in our world? Contracts, agreements, covenant relationships, evening, that of marriage. Have they lost their meaning Jesus gave us those instructions on that hillside near Galilee. He said this, Do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Simply let your yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And that's the passage. I wonder if James happened to be there that day. And for whatever reason, that stuck with him. Everything else Jesus said, that was something that reminded him. We have to look forward to the second coming of Jesus. We've got to be consistent between now and then, whenever then might be. And so if we're a believer, this is yet another sign of our genuine faith. It's how we are different. It's how we treat people. Are we dependable? Are we reliable? Are we trustworthy? Are we fair? If not, if we struggle in any of those areas or the areas of finance and we guard or we hoard our wealth because maybe we went through a bad time and we didn't have and so now we do and so we just grab it and hold on to it. We won't let it go at any cost, including the cause of Christ. Are there areas where we need to seek counsel? Are there areas where we need to grow in wisdom and better represent Christ to others? Is there somebody, maybe we're an employer, maybe we own a business and we have not been fair with that. Maybe we're a supervisor, an instructor of some kind, and we have not been fair with someone. We've deprived them in some way. First, repent to God immediately. Don't let another moment pass. Today, on your knees, repent to God, and then go to that person and ask, beg if necessary, for forgiveness. And finally, if you're not a believer, if you've not accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior yet, you're not given your life to Christ. The gospel does this really cool thing. The first thing, the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ, it requires of us, it commands us to love you, to love you as much as we love ourselves, even though you're not a follower of Christ yet. How incredible is that? That you could walk into a place like this, or you could meet someone, one of us on the street, and God says, hey, here's what I need you to do. I need you to love me, 
And I need you to love that person sitting next to you that's never been at church before. I need you to love that person that you walked by on the street. I need you to love that person that sits in the cubicle next to you or on the assembly line next to you or in the plant next to you or whatever it is. I need you to love that person as much as you love yourself. That's all. That's all. That's what the gospel requires of us, and it is a joy, Jesus tells us. His commands, they're not a burden. No, it's a joy for us. But there's another part of the gospel that forces us to do something else, and that's this. It forces us to tell you the truth. And as much as we want to tell you about the love of Jesus, and we do, and as much as we want to love you, and we do, we must tell you that there are consequences for not loving Jesus, for not returning that, for not accepting him. And right now you are apart from God and he wants you to be brought near to him. He wants you to come to him right now. He's waiting for you. He loves you so much that he gave his very own life. And so wherever you're listening, one of the coolest things we're getting to do right now, besides continuing to gather together, is we're gathering with people all over, literally, uh, this hemisphere at least. We got some people in the islands in the Caribbean watching us. It's crazy. It's crazy, and we get to talk directly to them too, and wherever they are, they can accept the name of Christ. And if you're here today and you've never accepted the love of Jesus in your life, today is the day. It might seem like the words of James don't really pertain to accepting Christ, but I tell you what, if you're struggling with Christ, you could be very physically rich and very spiritually poor. And God's not saying you need to necessarily give away all your finances, but maybe you do because that's the barrier between you in Christ. But maybe he's saying, I've blessed you. I've blessed you. And now I want to use this in you to go and serve and to love others. I know you have it in you. Come to me and let me show you. Maybe you've got that wall in your life. You're not a believer yet. We've got this wall. There's them and there's us. No, there's not. No, there's not. There's one human race if you don't know that. God created all mankind, period. And we have to live in that way regardless of what the world tells us. We have to love one another, and one another has no exclusions at all. Let's pray. Father God, as we go into a time of invitation, as we go into a time to celebrate the gift that you gave us, Father, I pray, I pray that if there's someone listening that doesn't know your love yet, I pray that they grow to know your love. Father, if there are believers listening today and and finances have been an issue. Father, they've bought into this worldly wealth in such a way that that is what they strive for. That is what their life is invested in. That is what they are pursuing. And it's costing them. It's costing them relationships. It's costing them maybe their very own health. Father, I pray that they reconsider their relationship with you and put you back in that driver's seat. And let their job, let their profession, let their wealth take a backseat. If there's believers here today that are struggling because of that separation that they have put in between them and others, whether it's those that are less wealthy or those that live a different lifestyle or those that are different skin color or whatever it might be, I pray that that wall can be torn down. The Spirit can move in, tear it down, and open the door wide open so that it can come in, change our hearts, change our minds toward those around us. Father, it is a blessing to be here today. It is a blessing, as confusing and chaotic as the times in which we live, Father, it is a blessing to be here and now and to get the privilege of representing you in this confused and chaotic world. We know the only source of peace is your son, and we've got to share him. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.